Welcome in, everyone. Happy to see you guys here. Yes. Yes. We hope this room starts feeling more and more like family. Even if you're new, we want you here. We want you plugged in. Uh, and we're excited to see you. My name is Oakley. I'm on staff as the women's director. Um, and I'm happy to be here tonight. Tonight, we're gonna continue in our series. So we've been talking the last couple of weeks just about this idea of who God is. Uh, and as, as a staff, when we were kind of brainstorming what we wanted to begin as our next series a couple weeks ago before we started this series, we were thinking about um, just the idea that there are a lot of lies and myths circulating about who God is and what really is truth uh, and how does God love us, how does God see us? And so as we kind of narrowed in and began to pray, really wanted to tackle a series where it was like, okay, we wanna dive into it. What does scripture say about this? Who really is God? And then how can we just debunk all these myths and lies so that we can walk forward knowing truth and resting in that? So we've gone over the last couple of weeks some different attributes of God, and we're just gonna continue that tonight. Um, but really just for the purpose of we just wanna know God better so that we can first and foremost feel loved and cared for by Him, uh, have relationship with Him, but then also share Him with a world that just is in desperate need of hope and desperate need of a savior. So thank you again for being here tonight as we dive into it once more. Um, kinda wanna start off just by acknowledging uh, that we all in our lives have different types of relationships. So you can look around this room. Uh, I've been here now, which is crazy to say, about seven months. And so I have different relationships with some of you in this room. Some of you, it's your very first time and you're like, who is this girl on stage? And then for some of you, I've gotten to know you a little bit. We know each other's names, can say hi when we're passing each other, uh, can catch up on life. And then there's some of you in this room also that I'm doing life on life with and I'm in community with and we're meeting each other on a regular basis. And so there's varying levels of depth and intimacy that come with those types of relationships. Uh, I'm not a person that's met many famous people in my life. If that is you, congratulations, that is not me. Uh, but my one claim to fame is two years ago, I was in Destin, Florida, and I'm at a marble slab, and uh, Sadie Robertson, now Sadie Huff, walks in, which, you know, Sadie Robertson, woo, I, I was a Duck Dynasty era also, so I've like seen her progress over the years. Um, and so I followed her on social media for a really long time and have kind of just watched her story unfold. And this really weird thing happened when I saw her just normally walk into this marble slab that I was eating at, was my first thought was like, oh my gosh, there's my friend, my lifelong friend, Sadie Robertson. <laughs> and then I'm like, I don't know her. I think I know her because I followed her on social media. But if I walked up and was like, oh my gosh, giant hug, Sadie, what's going on? She would be like, oh, someone call the police because I don't know this person. But that was my first thought was like, wow, I know so much about this person and great to see them. But in all reality, like I knew of her, I knew of Sadie, but I did not actually know her. So again, varying types of relationships. We think about kind of our inner circle of the people that know us our best, whether that's our family or closest circle of friends. And as people get to know you a little better, I mean, they're gonna be the people that are gonna know the foods that you hate or the pet peeves that you have in your life or maybe the place that you go when you're sad, uh, just the brokenness and sin that is a part of your life is gonna be more on display for those that know you best. I think that's been probably one of the hardest and most beautiful things about uh, being married and having a relationship that is so intimate is the good, the bad, and the ugly is on display at all times. And so take it or leave it, it's all out there and I cannot hide from my sin. Uh, but I will say that inner circle, having people that know you like that is great when you're faced with 
having to make a decision, you need comfort, you need support, because you want people around you that know you best. I'm not gonna just DM the Sadie Robertsons in life and be like, hey, remember that time you saw me at Marble Slab? I'm having a really hard day, can you hang out with me? That's just not, again, not the relationship. So you're gonna come to your inner circle, the people that know you the best and that are gonna be able to support you and comfort you the best. But because we have this array and this spectrum of relationships in our life, it can kind of uh, slowly and surely begin to infiltrate the way that we view our relationship with God, for better or for worse. Uh, We have these people that don't know us that well and that we kind of keep at bay. And then we have those that have known us really well and maybe have done really great things in our life and have been a great resource for us in times of need, or maybe have taken that space of vulnerability that we've invited them into and harmed us because of it. And so for better or for worse, all of these relationships in our life have influenced the way that we look at God. And tonight, I wanna go a little bit deeper on that thought of who God actually is, the type of relationship that he offers us, and how our God in every single way is incredibly personal and wants to invite you into the deepest and most vulnerable and most intimate relationship that you can ever experience. In order for us to have this relationship with God, we have to know him. Kind of like Carly said, like he wants us to know us. He wants us to know him. And then in turn, we have to let him know us as well. And so there's this exchange of vulnerability that happens in this deep relationship. And if we can't know that our God makes himself knowable and comes down and offers us this personal relationship, we're gonna be so much less likely to trust him. We're gonna be so much less likely to know that he's good and to really believe that he loves us and he's for us. So I think there's a couple different ways that we can look at the, the personal nature of God, uh, not, not the right ways to look at it, but I think some ways that we definitely have before, maybe some lies or some traps that we've fallen into about looking at the personal nature of God. Um, and as we kind of dive into these two different ways, I uh, wanna just discover some tension that's there within them um, and helps us kind of identify our need to really understand why is it important for God to even be personal in the first place. So one of those first lies that we can kind of talk about is that we can believe that God is distant. Um, I don't know if you've ever felt this way before. I absolutely have. And no one really wants to serve a God and be open with a God that they feel like from a distance is just micromanaging their life, sucking the fun out of everything. And then when it gets too hard, he's gonna dip out. And maybe some of you have had that perception or types of perceptions about God that kind of line up with those thoughts. He's that man upstairs to shoot the quick Hail Mary prayer up to you when things get hard and when you don't really have anywhere else to go. But even then, he might still let us down. Do we really know he's listening? We can't touch him, we can't feel him, we can't be around him. So how do we know that when we actually are communing and talking with this God that our prayers aren't just going up into the sky and not really being met by a creator that loves us? I know that in my own life, uh, especially when I look back at, I can, I can remember a season very specifically. It was like just sp- so, so spring, a couple of months in 2020. Um, and probably for a lot of us, that was a very iconic year. So you can remember that year and, and see how you grew and what happened that year for you. Um, but I remember that year, just or that spring being one of very, very serious lament and very much, I was sad and I was sorrowful. And those were the questions and the thoughts that I was having about God. God, you're not for me. God, you're not here. God, you're distant. And that, I, I struggled so deeply with really allowing myself to believe that God was personal. Because when God is distant, or we believe that God is distant, that then can translate to God's uncaring and God's not for me. 
Another end of kind of this spectrum, the other opposite end of the coin that we can sometimes think about God is that we actually don't want God to get too close. That, you know, we, we can believe he's distant, but in all reality, do we really want him to get that close? Do we really want him to see us for who we truly are? Because the more that God's involved, the more there's this layer of accountability, this sense of I'm seen and I am known, and that actually can be really terrifying. That can lead to feelings of I'm, I don't measure up, I'm not gonna be good enough, I'm just being judged. I feel like I should be different than I am. If God's too involved in our lives, then my life might actually have to look different. If my life is put in contrast with the perfect holiness of God, one, how could he ever love me in that, seeing my sin? And then two, I might have to change some of who I am, and that's way too uncomfortable. Really, in any relationship, the closer that we get to someone, the more ways that they're gonna know all of our brokenness. So again, there's some tension here. And I hope you can kind of feel that as we're, as we're walking through that and talking about it. We want a God that's intimate and close and personal. And yet we don't want a God that's too intimate and too close and too personal because that might get uncomfortable. And there's a level of vulnerability that we're okay with, but don't cross that line. Don't go over that line. And sometimes I think this is how we can think, at least for myself, I know this is true. Today, God, be the God that I would hope that you are, that I imagine that you are. Being approving of all the things that I'm doing and feeling and acting upon, um, kind of turning a blind eye to the things that might not line up with truth, but you still love me and you still care for me. And then tomorrow, when I'm in the depth of sadness or emotion or despair, come quickly, answer prayers, rid me of that deep hurt that I'm feeling. I don't wanna feel anything unpleasant. And then the second that you don't answer those things exactly like I would expect you to, then you must not be for me. And remember, don't try to change who I am. I'd much rather just be approved of in where I'm at. This can kind of turn into your relationship of convenience and influence the ways that we look at God. And ultimately, uh, the God that we're gonna find in the Bible is not really the God that we want anymore. So we're gonna create this God kind of that meets our needs. And in doing this, we push ourselves further into disconnect from the God of the Bible, the only God, and he seems further and further away because we don't actually know him and can't understand why he does the things that he does. So there is a healthy tension there and a hard tension when we begin to think about and look into the personal nature of the God that we serve. That there is a God that comes close to us and sees us in all of our vulnerability and openness and transparency. We're laid out before him and he still chooses us and still desires to have a relationship with us. But the tension is real. And I know on, on both ends of those spectrums, both not wanting God to be too close to see my brokenness and then really feeling like God's just distant and not for me. I felt both of those things in my life. And we're not alone in that either. We see the tension expressed all throughout scripture. Uh, the Psalms, I've, I've talked about that being as uh, one of my favorite books before, but the Psalms in scripture really just express a lot of emotion. Um, and King David oftentimes questioned the presence of God in his life as well. How was God working? What was God doing? And when you look at Psalm 22, one of my favorites, it starts off with these few verses. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. 
If we believe, much like David's expressing here, that God's not personal, we're not gonna see him playing an active, loving role in our lives. We're not gonna see a reason to come to him and build a relationship with him. He's just gonna consistently be this figure that's to be pleased. It's easy to question God's intimacy with us. It's really easy to question God's love for us in our weakest moments. But it's very, very hard to believe that God has never left us. It's very hard to believe he always offers this deeply personal relationship in our life and he works things out for our good. But that is what the truth is. And that's what we're gonna look at more tonight of as we lean into how God is personal, we can begin to allow ourselves to really, really believe that not only is this personal relationship with God available and offered, but it's something that God desires with us. And he's moved mountains and really worked in all of eternity, past, present, and future to make this a reality for us as his creation, to be able to come close to him and experience him personally. To believe in this personal God that's never stopped pursuing us is to believe that our faith is living and active. We serve a creator that's living and active and is walking with us every step of the way, which means that God becomes God with. God becomes God in the midst of things, not God that's disconnected, not God that's disingenuine or God to be pleased or God that's disapproving. He makes himself known to us and then invites us into a relationship with himself. Three truths, three points that I wanna look at tonight. We've kind of looked at, you know, what are some things we're tempted to believe in and some lies about the personal nature of God. But three truths I wanna look at tonight that we can read and, and as God allows, transfer from our minds and just words to really influence our hearts and the ways that we believe about him are truths that identify how is God personal in our lives? How does God work personally within each of our individual lives? And the first is this, God has personal attributes. The nature of God is very personal and we see it in all that he is, in his personality, in his characteristics, in his attributes. I was reading an article this week and kind of came across this little paragraph um, that just had, that identified some different characteristics of God and backed it up with the specific places that that was found in scripture. And starts off with this, the idea of the distinct and utterly personal nature of God runs throughout the Bible. God's will, his plans, his compassion, goodness, and loving kindness, his words, his deeds, and his thoughts and purposes are all inherently personal attributes and actions. God enters into covenants, makes promises, and swears oaths. God knows grief, pleasure, and wrath. Our God, the living God, isn't this inanimate object that can't experience pleasure or pain or grief or joy. In fact, what we see here is that God is a God of emotions. God experiences emotions. And we see that in the ways we're even created to experience an array of emotions. And we see throughout all of scripture that God experiences those emotions as well in perfection and in his holiness. They're not tainted by sin, much like our emotions can be, but God expresses emotions and therefore then has the ability to walk deeply beside us as we are experiencing them as well. God's intentional. From the very first book of the Bible, we see this. When he spoke the world into existence, nothing that he said was on accident. Nothing that he created wasn't purposeful, but it was all purposeful and all very much with intention. God is an active God. 
He creates, he initiates, he responds. No other thing can do this. Only a living being that has very personal attributes. So on a wide scale, on a broad level, God in all of creation expresses himself through his personal characteristics, his personal attributes. He's the God of emotions, the God of intentionality, the God of action. And when we see ourselves as creation consistently, it points us back to this dynamic and complex creator who in his holiness displays all that we can display, but he displays it in perfection. Acts 14, 15 says, you should turn away from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He is the God who made all things. He is the God who gives purpose to all things. And he has a will and a plan from the beginning of time. And this sets apart our God from everything else. The second point I wanna look at tonight is not only does God possess these attributes, but God shows these attributes. God shows us his attributes. The first day I wanna look at that, the first way I wanna look at how he shows his attributes is through creation. Psalm 19:1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. I mean, we can each think about one of the most beautiful places we've ever been. Whether that's for you, a road trip with friends across country or at the beach, at the mountains. I mean, our, even just the United States alone has so many beautiful wonders, let alone the entire world. And so think about the places that you have experienced and been where you've just found yourself standing in awe. Oftentimes, I don't have to go very far to do that. Like if I, I'm not a morning person, but if I get myself up before the sunrise, it's usually a great morning because I get to sit there and as the world wakes up and as light fills the space, there's just something so surreal about the quietness of that and God meeting you in that and getting to see things maybe you've overlooked and not seen or experienced before. Everything in this world from the smallest of things to the grandest, points back to a divine creator that much like we've talked about, had purpose and intentionality in creating everything, all to bring us back to him and all to express a glory to a creator that is worth worship. We can't just look at this world around us and think to ourselves that it just happened as we see the complexity of both the things that are created and us as individuals that have been created, it becomes more and more clear that there's a divine mind behind it all. Everything in creation possesses an imprint of its creator, every single thing. In Luke 19, 40, Jesus is talking and there's some people that are wanting to keep some people quiet that are worshiping Jesus and giving him glory and honor. And his response to them is, if they were silent, these stones would cry out. These very stones would cry out if they were, if they were silent. Romans 9, or 8, 19 through 23, it says, the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Everything in all of creation has been made by God and is made for God and is giving worship back to God consistently. It leads us into our next point. We as man are able to show God's attributes in our innate design. So creation reveals God's attributes, but then we as sons and daughters of God reveal his attributes. Ecclesiastes 3 tells us 
that God has placed eternity on every man's heart. All of us, whether we've experienced it and know why that desire is there yet or not, have been created with a desire for something that's far greater than ourselves. There's something in each person that God has placed that we often try to fill with something of this world, whether that be a person or a situation or a thing. And time and time again, we're let down because it's never going to fill the void, fill that desire that God has placed in us just for himself, that only he can place. He's desired us from the beginning of time. And then not only that has placed that within us so that we desire him as well and can have this very personal, unique relationship with him. God is a personal God, reveals this to us through creation, through us as his creation. God reveals his attributes in the way that he answers prayers. That might be a hard thing for some people to hear in this room because maybe God hasn't answered prayers in the ways that you'd expected. I'm right there with you through big and through little. I have seen God both comfort me as prayers have not been expect, answered the way I expected and rejoice with me as they've been answered far beyond what I could have ever anticipated. But what I do know and what I have seen from prayer is that it creates a relationship with God, creates a dependency on God and gives him the space to really blow your mind and really show how amazing and awesome he is. The truth is that God does answer prayers and we get to see him more and more through him answering prayers. One of the first stories that came to my mind as I was thinking about this, and all of scripture really is so full of God answering prayers. Again, what we would consider smaller prayers and then big giant prayers when we didn't know how God was gonna show up. But one of the things I thought of, one of the stories was, um, if you've heard of the prophet Elijah, Elijah had a really cool life. So I would say he's worth looking into. Uh, but Elijah has this conversation with a couple of prophets that followed this, this God, this idol named Baal. And they're having this conversation, this kind of disagreement of who really is the actual God. And so Elijah's like, well, you know what? We're just gonna set up this test of sorts to see who's the actual God. We're gonna both build altars. You build an altar to the gods of Baal. I'll build an altar to God Almighty. And we're gonna set this sacrifice on top of both of them. And whichever God sends fire from heaven down to burn up the sacrifice, that's who we're gonna know is the Almighty God. That's who's worthy of worship. That's a pretty big thing to be asking, kind of be like, all right, I think my God's gonna flex here. So I know that he'll show up. I know he's gonna answer these prayers. But the prophets of Baal were like, I think our God will too. Like we know, we know he's for us. We know he'll show up. So they go first, set up their altar, put the sacrifice on top of the altar and then begin to cry and pray and worship and plead with their God to show up and send fire from heaven. And this goes on for hours. Hour after hour after hour, they sit there and pray to God. So much so, and what I love about the Bible is it doesn't hold back, but so much so that Elijah begins to, it says, mock these prophets of Baal. He begins to ask them, well, you know, like, don't worry about it. Just keep, keep calling out to him. He might be taking a nap. He might have gone somewhere else for the day. He'll, he'll come back and answer. Maybe he's in the bathroom. So don't worry about it. He's probably gonna come back soon. I mean, this is literally what scripture says, which is just crazy. And so he keeps saying this to them. They get to the point where they're cutting themselves, these prophets of Baal. They're wanting to show that they are submitted fully to their God and they're asking him to move and prove himself. And as we see from the story, the God never shows up. 
He never hears them. He never sends fire from heaven. So now it's Elijah's turn. Elijah gets this altar ready, puts a sacrifice on top of the altar, but he ups the ante a little bit. He digs a trench around the altar and then he gathers these big jars of water and begins to pour them over the sacrifice, jar after jar, so much so that the trench begins to fill with water that's surrounding the altar. And then Elijah kneels and prays one simple prayer. I wanna read it. It's found in 1 Kings. Uh, And mind you, this is the simple prayer he prays after the prophets of Baal have spent hours crying out to their God. Starting in uh, chapter 18 of 1 Kings, verse 37, he says, answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Our God wins. Our God answers. Our God hears prayers every single time. God, show up. Yes, I will. I'm God. I'm worthy of worship. I'm powerful. I'm big. And God shows himself to be who he is every time. God does not hide himself. God's not a God that wants to confuse us when we pray with him and when we ask him of things and when we come to commune with him. We actually see in 1 Corinthians 14, God's not a God of confusion, but God's a God of peace. He provides that peace. He answers, he shows up when his people call upon him. God is a personal God. And thirdly, and most importantly, if you hear anything tonight, hear this exact point, because God can show himself to anyone in all of creation and in his attributes, the ways that he's kind and loving and gracious. People can believe that. God can show himself through man. We see the complexity of creation around us. Maybe you even experienced God answering prayer in your life and you've seen how he works in prayer. But it does not have the same weight and power if what we see in this next point isn't true, and that is that God gives us himself. God gives us himself. He is a personal God and goes all the way to the extent of the most loving and selfless and vulnerable thing he could have done, and that is offering himself fully to have relationship with us. From the very beginning of time, God's heart and God's desire has been to be with us as people. So now we're gonna move out of this realm of we see God in creation, we see him over all of the world, but he's intimate and he pursues us, each person uniquely. God has wanted to dwell with us since the very beginning of time. We're gonna look at it. We're gonna look at the narrative of scripture and how it shows us that from the very first man to the very end of time, that's God's heart. God creates Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are walking with God in the Garden of Eden, perfect, in perfect harmony, in perfect unity. Sin enters the picture, messes it up completely. Not because of something that God did, but because of us as his people that moved away from him and rebelled against him. And yet God's heart doesn't change. It stays the exact same. So years later, God is saving the Israelite people from slavery in Egypt. He's using a redeemer 
named Moses to bring them out of Egypt and lead them to the promised land. And while they're being led to the promised land, God's heart again is, I wanna be with my people. I wanna dwell with my people. And so he instructs them to create a tabernacle. It's basically just a tent of meeting where his spirit can come and reside with his people and dwell with them and be with them. So they create this tabernacle for God to come and be with them. Years later, King David's son Solomon is instructed to build a more permanent solution for this tabernacle, which is the temple of God. There are very specific instructions for how this should be built, all these different rooms and things that are gonna be included in this temple. But again, the heart behind it is God wants to be with his people. God wants to dwell with his people and be with them. And time and time and time again, we as people, because of our rebellion and our sin and our brokenness, continue to mess things up. God's heart's consistent, but we cannot stay consistent with him. And we keep messing up and we keep falling into sin. And so the temple at a certain point is destroyed. People, God's people turn away from him. They're headed into this time of exile away from the promised land and the temple is destroyed. Now later it's rebuilt, but it's never rebuilt into its former glory. There's always these temporary solutions of how God can be with his people. And it comes to this place where God in his perfection knew that the only way for there to ever be a permanent solution for him to be with us and redeem us as his people was that he had to come himself, walk amongst us, be fully God, fully human, limiting himself to life here on earth so that he could live with us, be with us, eat with us, sleep and dine with us and have relationship with us and then ultimately give his life completely as the perfect temple, the perfect sacrifice to defeat sin once and for all. You see, Jesus was that temple living here among us in all of perfection, being what we could never be and being the atonement that we desperately needed. What I love about the story of Jesus is in his hardest and scariest moment on the cross as he is taking in his last breath and he is going to be with the Father. As he exclaims to the world that it is finished, it has been done, sin has been atoned for. There was a curtain in the holiest of holies in the temple that we see written about in the Old Testament, they created this room, the holiest of holies, where only certain people could go at certain times in the year. And it was guarded by this giant curtain. Because if you went in there and you weren't cleansed completely of sin, you would die on the spot. That's how holy and perfect God is. And the second that Jesus is on the cross and he exclaims with a loud breath, it is finished. That curtain is torn in two, which symbolizes that we no longer have to be separated from God. We no longer have to live in our sin and our hopelessness, but God has made a way through his son, his perfect son, for us to now have perfect relationship with him. But guys, it does not stop there. Jesus had to go and be back with the father. He's coming again and we know it. But he tells his disciples and he tells us today that he does not leave us orphans. He does not leave us alone. Jesus sends his Holy Spirit, God's perfect spirit to come and dwell inside each believer so that you and I can be provided for, cared for, guided throughout life, that we do not have to be alone. God sends his spirit to be with us. Like we've talked about the whole night, God is personal. John 16 says, 
I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. And when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all of the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Every single believer now has the opportunity to have the spirit of God dwell inside of them. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. God is personal and his plan for all of time has been to be with us and provide for us and have relationship with us. Through the attributes of God, we're reminded that he feels in our emotions. He has a plan, he has a purpose and acts intentionally. Through the world around us and through God answering prayers, we see his intimate pursuit of all of creation. Through the person of Jesus, we now have a way to be reconciled with him. And through God's very spirit, we can live in power and confidence, knowing God never leaves, knowing God never forsakes. And maybe that's just what some of you in this room needed to hear tonight, that you are seen by the creator of the universe and he loves you and he's never left and he desires that closeness with you. What is God through all of this inviting us into with himself? What is made possible in our relationship with God? What type of barriers have we put up in our own lives that have kept us from experiencing this intimacy with God? What's keeping us from, from walking into that fully now? And only you can answer that for yourself, but it's good to think about because God's never moved, God's there. And it's a battle every single day to push aside the sin and the lies from the enemy to remind ourselves that we have a savior that has come and cares for us so much so that didn't just pay the price and then was done with us. And that would have been plenty, but still says, I still wanna be with you. I still want relationship with you. And what you're walking through really matters to me. Even knowing all of this, even having the head knowledge of God, God's for me, God's personal, it can still be really easy to feel far from God. I'm not saying it's not. I'm saying that I understand. I've been there feeling far off from God. I think is one of the, the easiest things that the enemy can turn to again and again and again to make us question him. I found myself praying so many times, that similar prayer we talked about earlier from King David, of my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? I don't feel you. I don't see you moving. The tension that we mentioned at the beginning of this message is real. How can there be a God that's close, but continues to love me, that sees me, all of me, sees what I did last weekend, sees what I did yesterday, and continues to love me? But what's so beautiful is that in Psalm 22, as David continues to pray, reminding himself of the character of God, even though he cannot see what God's doing, even though we're human and broken, his psalm turns into one of worship. He continues on, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. 
For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from them, from him, but has heard when he cried to him. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. He has done it. God has made a way through Jesus Christ for us to dwell with him and be with him forever. May we ask God to come into this room tonight break down those barriers, refresh our hearts, help us to see how much he loves us and how he's made a way for us to be incredibly personal with him. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? God, oh, we're so grateful we are so grateful that the expanse between heaven and earth was crossed by you because we couldn't have done it on our own. There's no way that we could have done enough to get to you on our own. And you crossed through all of time, you crossed through all of sin to come and to make a way for us to have relationship with you. Thank you, God. Thank you that even though we mess up time and time and time again, we question you, we doubt you, we're frustrated with you that you never leave, you don't move away, and you remain incredibly personal. God, we love you so much. Help us to love you more, God. Help us to see all of the things that you do to pursue us. Open our eyes to answered prayers and help this reality really sink in tonight, God, that you're not this distant, far off God, but someone that's come and is so personal. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for how you love us. And it's in your most holy son's name that we pray, amen.